I'm Daniel Chacon. Welcome to another edition of Words on a Wire, our 13th season. And my guest today, I probably had on at least 13 times. He's one of the most, <laughs> one of our most prolific writers. And as such, every time he has a book, I say, hey, you've got to be on the show. I'm talking about El Paso's own Sergio Troncoso. And I hardly need to uh, read your resume, Sergio, because everybody knows you, especially uh, fans of this show. So welcome back to Words on a Wire. Thank you, Daniel. I'm always thrilled to be um, here. And guess where I'll be tonight? I'll be in El Chuco. Oh, no way. What are you, what are you doing over here? I'm doing some, some stuff. Uh, there's a film being shot, and somebody asked me to be part of it. Oh, and cool. so... I'm showing up, and then I actually have some events all throughout Texas right afterwards. So I'm just going from El Paso one day to um, to the other side, to Houston and College Station and all sorts of other places, Dallas. Nice. And then that's all to promote your latest book, Nobody's Pilgrim. Yeah, it's to promote it. and I mean, I see it as talking about it, talking about the novel and trying to get readers interested in it. And because uh, it's very, it's something different that I've done. I haven't yeah, really written this kind of novel before. Yeah, definitely. It's it's much different from anything I've seen from Sergio Troncoso. I couldn't help but think of the last tortilla days, the last tortilla, which was <laughs> your your very first collection of stories. I believe your very first book won the Premio Atlan. And I remember receiving it for the first time. Uh, you know, shortly after it came out, and I read it. You know, and uh, and and really liked it. But then I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, man, this this writer is really pushing pushing the the the, the uh, pushing the envelope of, of of I don't know of your own aesthetic and your own creativity. It's quite different, and and uh, well, yeah. you know, I mean, I every time I take on a new work, I want to do something different from mm-hmm. from what I've done before, and not just from the topics and the subjects, uh, but also from a a point of view of craft. If you know, I, I wanted to write an adventure story. I right. never really, in fact, that, that was the title of Nobody's Pilgrims before it was Nobody's Pilgrims, my right. adventure story or an adventure story. Right. And right. and I wanted to write something very fast paced and uh and also about in a way leaving the border, you know, taking right. the border beyond El Paso, beyond uh West Texas and uh, New Mexico but to the rest of the country. You know, it's it's such a it's such a compelling read that I kind of want to talk about it almost in a linear uh, a linear sense because I want I want to start with with the beginning of the book and then I want to work our way towards that fantastic ending um and cover a lot of the surprises that uh, that that come up but so the first thing I want to ask you about is um uh Turi. Right. Turi, the main character, a boy, you know, living in El Paso, living with uncaring, abusive relatives in Isleta, I believe, which is where you're from. Right. And he dreams about going to Connecticut. He's this El Paso guy in Isleta, and the wind is blowing and the dust is getting on his teeth. And he's picturing these beautiful, beautiful trees and leaves in Connecticut. 
why Connecticut? How, how did that come about? Well, you know, for me, it was um, focusing on someone who reads. Because one of the most important things about Duty, of course, is that he's a bookworm. In fact, uh, when and he's an orphan as well. So the reading is, it sort of prompts his imagination to think about other places, to think about where he could be. Uh, and his aunt and his uncle don't really want him there. You know, they, they're, they're, they are abusive. And yet he is, what he re- remembering the values he's remembering, of course, of, of, are about his mother, right. you know, which all plays a very strong part in his imagination. And of course, how we grew up in Isleta. Um, and, and so for me, it, this, this sense of how does reading prompt your imagination to take action? How is reading actually a catalyst for opening your minds, for thinking of other places, thinking of who else you can be? So he's, he's in a tough situation in Isleta. His, his aunt doesn't want him there. His uncle uh, abuses him. And, and he wants to get the hell out. And, and I think, you know, this very bucolic version of Connecticut that he has in the very first page, mm-hmm. it's not the real Connecticut. It's actually, in many ways, just what he learns from books. It's, a, it's different from, from the border. It, it's, uh, he, he also loves, you know, stupidly, I guess. And, and he's embarrassed by Charlie Brown and Charlie Brown Christmas and the Great Pumpkin Right. Uh, adventure with Linus. And and so he has this very idealistic way of looking at Connecticut. And one way to read the novel, I mean, there are many ways to read it, but it is going from this idealism of what books prompt you, New England, Connecticut, what, what are your American dreams, to the reality of it, to actually getting to Connecticut, to yeah, actually I mean, experiencing the real Connecticut. And that, then... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, anyway, and then still and still believing in the dream, even though it's not an idealistic dream anymore. Right. That 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 definitely makes a lot of sense. And you know, it, on on the, the level of the narrative and the level of the text, Connecticut, you know, roots him in a dream and then ultimately, and I don't want to talk about it yet, but we'll get right. there to where he ends up. But it kind of you know makes that uh that uh you know, connection from the beginning to the end. But but what about subtextually? What does Connecticut mean? What literature was he influenced by? Why why Connecticut? And what does Connecticut mean to the writer that might be somehow embedded in the narrative on a subtextual level? Well, I, I think several several points I would make. I mean, first, of course, one of Duty's favorite writers is Mark Twain. Right. You know, the, Adve- the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and uh, Tom Sawyer. And of course, uh, for a long time, uh, Mark Twain lived in Connecticut, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, for example, he wrote, and the Mark Twain house is in Connecticut. So I think that's one you could call it subtextual level. But I think more generally for Duty, the character, Connecticut represents New England, represents something he doesn't have, represents greenery and, and away from his... Uh, abusive home. Uh, mm-hmm. It represents, um, you know, going somewhere almost like an adventure. It imagines a Chicano Magellan, so to speak. You're, take, <laughs> you're taking off. You don't right. really know where you're going. You have an idea of where you might end up, but it's just an idea. Until you get there, you won't, you won't really know what it is. 
Right. And so, so I think for Tutti, it is this image that spurs him to take a leap of faith, to jump in the truck, to take off and, and become a runaway teen. And, and, and it is this book learning that prompts it. So, so, so I think it's, it's all sorts of questions. And by the way, if you ever read, for example, A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant Son, uh, which was the previous short story collection, I have a, um, a story called New Englander. And that's all about Connecticut and a Chicano in right. Connecticut. And right. it's all about who is the real New Englander? Is it the white guy that tries to rip the Chicano off who, and the Chicano or the Chicano who worked his ass off to achieve what he did? And he happens to live in Connecticut. And, and so the question, you know, for duty, you could call it on a subtextual level, uh, is something similar to that. Right. He wants his own adventure. He wants his own American dream. It's not starting in New England as it started for the right. Pilgrims, but it's starting on the border, the Ellis Island of the South and Paso. And right. he's going to, to conquer, experience, find out what is the heart of the United States? What is New England about in his mind, you know, and, yeah, and, and in reality? And I think it's the perfect, you know, the, the perfect place for him to imagine. And it works so organically within the rest of the novel. And then, of course, again, I'll, I'll get to the ending a little bit later on. I don't want to ruin it because I want to go through this, like I said, in a linear kind of way. But it makes sense, Connecticut. And um, on, on two levels, first of all, you're, you're growing up in El Paso. And it seems that the conventional dream of working class El Paso Chicano uh, 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 Chicanx people uh, wanting to get out is California or Austin, but this goes right. way beyond, you know. And uh, and I love that. I love it. it's 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 beyond what the imagination has, you know, uh, work its way into the literature of El Paso. Right. And then well, the other, and, and then well, the other thing that I really like, I have I teach, uh, you know, here at UTEP, and I had a student, a uh, uh, young Latino guy, grew up in El Paso, grew up, you know, in uh, 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 um, on on the uh, on the east side, and when I asked him to imagine going anywhere they wanted, he chose Connecticut. He <laughs> chose Connecticut, and I couldn't help but think of Good that for and him. And I asked him why Connecticut, and mostly it was because he would imagine it from literature. He was reading a lot of John Green at the time. You know, give him, give him this book. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. But 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 for me, I think you're absolutely right, Daniel. I want to challenge, if you want to call it, the Chicano literary imagination. Right. I believe Chicanos should conquer not just places like Austin, not just places like Califas and Los Angeles, but right. places like Connecticut, places like Massachusetts, places where we are not there traditionally. So I believe we have to expand our literary imagination and our and our ambition. Right. You know, we, we are deeply part of this country as immigrants, as writers, as uh, people challenging the norms. And, and there's a lot of pushback. And right. the reason there's a lot of pushback is because we're not staying on the border. We're not staying in Austin. We're not staying in California, Los Angeles, right. Fresno. We're going into uh, Kansas City. We're going into Minneapolis. We're going into New Haven in Connecticut. And and it's upsetting people. And you know what? I don't give a damn. I think we should push and open what, up what, those what boundaries. What is upsetting people? Well, I think it's because you had you had Chicanos in places that are where they rarely have seen a Chicano. 
or or well, you know no it's, it's not so much that they haven't yet. seen a chicano it's that it, a chicano hasn't been there literarily speaking because i've lived in minnesota i've lived in other places right. you know there's going to be mexicans everywhere where there's right. work that's true and so it's not that you know that those places don't have it it's that we don't have those places inside of our vision of self and that's what right Woody is is you know he, he, he started out with literature uh, but he's from El Paso. He's got that same desire, but he kind of creates a dream for himself that is unique, and and I think right. that's very empowering. Yeah, and 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 I think it's also, you know, when you live in places that don't have a massive quantity of Chicanos and that history, uh, it is breaking open not just the the physical doors to to you know, to people that stop you from advancing in places that where you haven't belonged traditionally, but it's also opening up your minds to say you belong there from a literary point of view. Right. You belong at the heart of this country. And I can even tell you, if you ever want to know the reason why I called it Pilgrims, Nobody's Pilgrim, because there's a very specific story to that. And it actually is, it, it occurred in, in the heart of New England for me. Well, it sounds like you want to tell that story, so let's hear it. <laughs> so, so a, long, a, a few years ago, I was asked to give this very famous lecture called the White Fund Lecture, mm -hmm. and it's it's given in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and it's been going on for over I think a hundred years now. And people like uh, Juno Diaz gave it, and uh, Ernest Hemingway gave it, and and other great writers. And it and, and anyway, so it's in the heart of Lawrence, Massachusetts. And Lawrence, Massachusetts is now majority Latino and it's more Centroamericano and it's Dominican. Um, and, and so what did I do? I, I, I went from an El Paso guy to studying at Harvard. So before I gave this lecture, I wanted to see who established the lecture and why they did it. So I went to Harvard libraries and found out about Judge Appleton White. Um, he was uh, a contemporary of Thoreau and Emerson, and he established this lecture in, uh, in the mid, I think, 1800s, and was also the founder of the Salem Lyceum, which was basically a public library. And I found his memoir in the Harvard Library. And I don't think anybody had done this before that they had given the lecture. And what is he complaining about in the memoir? and that written during the time of Thoreau, he's castigating, among many other things, um, the current generation of English um, settlers in that area and criticizing them for not welcoming the new English settlers coming in in the mid-1800s because uh, part of the creation of Lyceum was to educate with basically free public libraries. That's what a lyceum is. It's a, a library that allows uh, you to come in, hear lectures and educate yourself when you have no money. And, and those became public libraries. And so he's criticizing uh, his, his, uh, the people who are basically the ancestors of the pilgrims and, and saying, why aren't you helping these immigrants? Why aren't you helping me fund the Salem Lyceum? You know, this is why I'm going to establish this lecture to to give it in a free place like a public library or, the, or a lyceum and educate the new immigrants coming in. 
And he said, these people coming in now, are we're like the pilgrims. We're like your ancestors. And now that you've made it, of course, you want to shut the door. Right. And so this is the problem, of course, that you see in Chicanos and McAllen voting for Trump or uh, or other immigrants. You know, they, they come and they make it into this country and then uh, they want to shut the door. They want to say, no, um, you know, let's not support the new wave of immigrants coming in now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is why, you know, Duty, Mali and Narnutfo are like the new pilgrims. They're not coming from England. They're not coming from, from New England. They're coming from the South. They're coming from, you know, places like El Paso, and they're trying to make their way in. And, and so, and I feel that sort of understanding why America or the, the idea of America, the United States, is important, is to go through that gauntlet of, of suffering, of, of tough situation, and overcoming them, sometimes by, by grit, sometimes by moral luck, sometimes with the help of friends. And this really gives you an appreciation for the value of freedom in this country. Once you're here and you make it as an immigrant, you lose that sense of value. So I, I've, I've always felt that my parents and, and uh, you know, the generation that came from Juarez and, the, and made them, their places in the Paso are really much more akin to the original pilgrims and why they were coming, they weren't coming with much, if anything, to a hostile world. And, and, and so their, their deep appreciation of what that freedom meant is entwined with the struggle to achieve it. Right. You take away the struggle, you don't understand that freedom. If you're born here with a silver spoon up your ass, like Donald Trump or whoever, you will not understand that freedom. And so, and maybe that's too pointed a a remark to make, but that's how I feel. Yeah, and um, before you read the novel and you get a sense of of, uh, the three characters, and we'll name these characters, you you named them just now, but we'll we'll name them in just a little bit. Uh, uh, You know, these these characters as pilgrims, you know, going to a better place, you know, where they can worship their own gods, whatever they happen to be, right? The, the narrative of the right. pilgrim. The, the, the title also works on another level, and that is there has been this idea in, within indigenous communities, including the Chicanx community, that we are not pilgrims. This right. is our land. We are free to travel wherever the hell we want in this land. And I kind of like that aspect of it too. And so these come together and uh, and deepen the whole idea of pilgrim. So nobody's pilgrim is both them being pilgrims, but also them saying, hey, you know, this is us. This is, we belong here, pilgrim. You know, it's that, that indigenous right. t-shirt, you know, you know, who are you calling pilgrim, pilgrim? Uh, right. This novel, Nobody's Pilgrim, reads like a movie. Uh, and, and at times, kind of a Quentin Tarantino type of movie. At times, kind of a, uh, an adaptation of the uh, uh, Cormac McCarthy type of movie. And I'm wondering, as you were writing this, I'm really interested in your process. Did you visualize it like a movie and then the narrative kind of just, you know, adapted to that? Or did the narrative and the movie kind of come together at the same time? Because it's clearly very cinematic. And and that's one of the exciting things about it. 
I mean, you right. just want to keep keep reading through it because you want to know what's going to happen next. So I'm kind of wondering about that movie quality of it and where that came up in the aesthetic or in the process. Well, it, I mean, funny that you mentioned that, but my agent, of course, um, said that there was interest. There's, there, there is interest in adapting this for a movie. Oh, I and imagine. So, so she got me two agents from very powerful uh, Hollywood agency. I think it's uh, CA or Creative Artist or something. And so they're pitching the book for for possible movie option deal. Um, I didn't, you know, I've never written a movie. I've never written a screenplay. I certainly know people in Hollywood. But what I wanted to write was an adventure. Mm-hmm. And so I, I didn't set out to to write something that was cinematic, but I, I definitely wanted to write something that is very much tied to action. And a lot of it has to do with being an Aristotelian. You know, I mean, I studied Aristotle. I don't <laughs> believe, I don't believe, you know, I was writing, going to write a dissertation on Aristotle for my doctorate. But I believe your character comes out through action. And, and what people kept telling me repeatedly in my stories is, oh my gosh, you write really great action. Why don't you just write two or 300 pages of action? And so this was, this was what my sense was. Right. I want to write an adventure story. And I want to write a story in which what the characters do, yes, you begin with some idea of who they are, but what they do in crucial moments either deepens their character or makes them flawed in a way that eventually causes them to, to have either further problems. And so... So that was sort of my process, you know, when you asked about the process. It wasn't necessarily, under, it was really understanding the characters first and really getting to know the characters well, but then having them take me act by act by act to what would happen next, given who I thought that they were in my mind right, right. Uh, and, and how they would connect. And so, so, and then of course, you know, you edit it to, to make it as tight, and as uh, suspenseful as you possibly can make it. Because that was my intent. I had not really written a, uh, you know, this kind of book. And, and, and I just, I really fell in love with the, that fast pace. And I think probably I'm going to try it again. Because people seem to really enjoy it. And, and I am trying to bring the reader into this fast-paced narrative, but with very well-formed characters that are making moral choices and sometimes lucky choices, because I'm also a believer in moral luck, you know, that sometimes it's just plain luck that gets you out of a situation. Sometimes it's uh, a trust that you give to somebody, like all of these teenagers trust each other immediately, pretty much, after knowing you know, knowing each other for a few minutes or a few hours. And and then at a certain point, they have to trust each other to even save their lives. And right. I think they, this sense of, of immediate connection, I feel like we lose as we get older and crappier. You know, we start be, being cerrados and not being uh, open to trusting people. And sometimes, you know, people shouldn't be trusted. Sometimes people, you have to be more wary, of course, you know, of, of, of somebody offering their hand to you. But, but, but I feel young people do this in a way that, uh, that I found very uh, inspiring. 
And a lot of it was I thinking about my own sons, the thing that they're doing with their friends that I find astonishing. And I wish I had the guts and the character to, to do those things at that age. I didn't. This novel, a lot of action, a lot of great stuff happens. And uh, we'll go into that perhaps in a little bit, but, but what really struck me also is that at the heart of this is a love story, a love story between Molly and Turi. And it's a real love story. I mean, you know, I would, you know, you develop the love and then, you know, the, the, the ending image is so prelapsarian almost in a sense. But uh, and in innocence, but um, let's talk about Molly and 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 Turi. How you know why Molly and and uh, you know why Turi? How did they come about as characters? Well, you know, for me, uh, Turi is of course, uh, you know, probably a, a younger, better version, more intrepid version of myself, um, in a way. And is Molly me? Am I am I Molly? Come on. <laughs> no, nah, I'm, I'm kidding. You could be Molly. I mean, but Molly is also me, you know, yeah, in, in a way. You know, they, they're both bookworms. They right. love to read. To duty when he runs away, he's carrying a crate of, of books that Mrs. Garcia, the Isleta librarian, gave to him. Right. And and this wordplay, when they pick up Molly, you know, Molly saves him from a pickle when they stop at the Mark Twain National Forest. And um, and so Molly just it is trusting in a way that um, that disarms Duty because Duty is imagining he really hasn't met a lot of blonde girls with blue eyes. Grew up in Isleta, everyone there is Mexicano, and he sees Molly when they arrive at the tackle shop and they stop into the Mark Twain National Forest, and she's working behind the cash register as this kind of tough gritty she's she's stronger physically than than the two boys and 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 this sort of and yet she's beautiful yet she's you know very appealing to the eyes so to speak but she doesn't no se cree muy muy she doesn't have airs about her she's a working class white girl and Tudi has never really met someone like that now that you bring that up you know she's from Steelville and right. he's from El Paso, and I couldn't help but juxtapose these two cities and these two experiences. Can you unpack that a little bit, these two towns and how they reflect not only the characters, but how they're connected? Well, I mean, uh, El Paso is a working class town. Uh, certainly, Duty is a working class kid. He's working at a chicken farm where he meets uh, Arnulfo, and they begin their adventure after they, they take off in this truck with the old man Juanito. And so, Duty's values are certainly very much working class, doing for himself, yet he's a bookworm that imagined Connecticut and, and, and what might be there. And then Molly is, lives in Steelville, Missouri, which is probably uh, has about 2,000 people in it, in the middle of nowhere, Missouri. She's, she's surrounded by old guys who love to fish, and there's hardly <laughs> any teenagers there at all, even within like an 80-mile distance, she's dying to get out of her tiny town. And she's an orphan, too. She lives with her brother and her his girlfriend. And they really don't want her there, especially the girlfriend. The girlfriend really doesn't want Molly there because they just had a kid and they need they want the room. And Molly, of course, takes 
takes time and money. And Molly's trying to do her part by working at the tackle shop, which is where they meet Duty and Arnulfo. So I think the, the connection is they're both outsiders. They're both um, Duty and Molly. They're both bookworms. Mm-hmm. They uh, also um, are, are very, you know, they're, they're not, they're self-possessed. They, they're not really looking to impress people or to try to manipulate anybody. And they're not sure of, of, of their world and what it taught them. Like, Duty does not, you know, he, he's taken aback by Molly because she said if she were in Isleta, she did automatically, simply because of how she looked, blonde, blue-eyed, and, and kind of good-looking, would go to the top of the, of the list of kids, you know, the cheerleader type. Although she's not a cheerleader. She's a gritty with dirt under her fingernails, uh, kind of white girl. And and Molly doesn't know, you know, what are these Mexican kids showing up at the tackle shop in this tiny town in Steelville, Missouri, with this blue truck that may or may not be there. And um, and so 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 they they almost have to overcome their own perceptions of who they think the other person will possibly be. And a lot of this they do this through wordplay. And yeah. Molly wanting to get out of get out of the hell of, of Steelville. Yeah, those are those are, some, those are some nice moments when they when they play around with words and go back and forth, Barbie as in a romantic right. comedy. And then we have the uh, you know the the uh, third member Arnulfo, right? He's right. a Mexican immigrant. He's actually not doesn't even have papers, and he expresses at one point in the novel, he says, you know, my dream is just to come here and to work here. And to make right. a living, and in many ways, he kind of represents that uh, archetypal Mexican immigrant coming to work hard. And he's a, he, you know, he's he's very decent. He's very just loyal, and he's a good friend. Can you talk a little bit about how he came about? So Arnulfo, you know, was someone Duty met meets at the chicken farm when they're working uh-huh. and they become fast friends. They're basically the youngest kid there working at the chicken farm and they're both 17, but they're different, you know, and, and if these differences eventually come out, you know, uh-huh. in which, um, you know, duty, uh, Mexican American Chicano from El Paso and, and Arnulfo is uh, an undocumented immigrant. And, and I think, that kind of friendship I always, uh, I had, I knew certainly a lot of undocumented immigrants in Isleta next door to me, uh, who people who I knew were, were very decent people who wanted to work, you know, um, Los de Abajo, as I would say, from Chihuahua, especially, because there was a lot of people from Chihuahua in my neighborhood. And so Arnulfo is in a way someone that, you know, certainly a young person that I, uh, would, would know, you know, growing up in Isleta. And, and I think the, I think one of the things that I wanted to play out, is not just this friendship between them, but, but also um, the differences, you know, as they go in the truck and they're taking off with Juanito, this old foreman in the, in the, in the truck to Kansas city. And then they find of course that Juanito is carrying some sort of contraband. And, and they think it's drugs or, or money, but it's actually, as you know, it's something much worse. Mm-hmm. That they, they Arnulfo and Turi, and then later Molly, face dangers. Right. But, but 
Arnulfo faces the greater danger of being discovered as right. an undocumented immigrant. And, and you know, and there's this, this there's, there's this incredibly and, poignant moment in the novel where Arnulfo uh, is about to really kind of make a sacrifice by taking the truck. Right. You know, well, uh, Molly and uh, and uh, and Tudi can can get away, and um, and and he's talking about his dream, and it's it's really sad, but he, you know, kind of beautiful as well. Where he said, you know, there's somebody. I think Molly knows somebody who owns a restaurant, and right. he thinks, do you think I could get a job working in the kitchen? And it's like, you know, that, you know, his eyes light up, and it really shows the contrast between you know, his dreams and Tori's dreams, which are much more expansive, much more, you know, like who knows what's going to happen, you know, but he doesn't picture him work himself working at a restaurant in the kitchen. And right. I thought that was really a wonderful contrast to show those two different kind of parallel narratives that Latinx people have, right. um, that he's still the community. And so is Tori the community. And even Molly is the community, but, um, uh, uh, we're we're kind of we're kind of running out of time, and I just have to mention this um, as they're going on their adventure. And I don't want to tell it too much, but it's quite an adventure. Uh, as they're going on their adventure, and they're being pursued by drug dealers and be pursued by bad people, and trying not to you know uh, have too many people notice them. Uh, Arnulfo right. doesn't want to get deported. As all this is going on. Suddenly, and you write about this in your afterwards, how this was just something that organically came along. Suddenly, there's a pandemic, and it changes everything. Uh, right. Can you talk about uh, a little bit about how that came along, and what it means to you then, and what it means to you now? Well, so I, I turned in the final, final draft of this novel on their last leap day, February 29, twenty twenty. So Trump was still president. I think there were still 10 or 15 cases of COVID then. Um, not deaths, just cases. And it wasn't even right. called COVID. It was called and, and coronavirus it, back then. Right. It was called coronavirus. <laughs> and um, and also, you know, I mean, I just, uh, and, and an ARC was produced, an uh, advanced reading copy. Uh -huh. And. And I had just imagined in 2018 and 2019, when most of the novel was written, what would tear apart this country? What would test us? What would test our sense of community? And I thought, well, a pandemic. And so I did research on, on this pandemic that happened in Germany that uh, called Marburg mm -hmm. and had an 80% kill rate. And it was uh, transmitted by touch. Um, blood, semen, sweat, not through the air like the coronavirus. And, and so as Tudi and Mali and, and Arnulfo are going on their adventure and people are pursuing them, this country is collapsing because of a pandemic. Right. And, and they that is another part of the gauntlet that they have to survive. Right. And, and that's more toward the end of the, of the novel. So, so in a way, the novel somewhat predicted the pandemic that was to follow, I still think it's an important um, part of my life. Yeah, and, uh, and of course, the reason it took so long to come out was because Cinco Puntos, basically when the contract was done, um, and I think three or four other writers were in the same situation, 
they were told we had to stop everything because we're in negotiations to sell it to a New York publisher, whatever that was. We didn't even know they wouldn't tell us. And then eventually, over six months, a year, it, it became Lee and Lowe. Mm-hmm. And so the novel came out, um, you know, more or less when we're almost out of the pandemic, or although not quite of the pandemic, but at the you know, the novel was done. Yeah, and, we're still and, and not waiting. quite out of it. <laughs> right. And so, so I mean, for, for me, it was, I still think it was, a, it still is a true test of, of our coming together or not. Right. And I think it shows a fracture in this country. And, and this is an old question that I know if you've read my essay, uh, Life is Crossing Borders in Nepantla Familia, that I think the biggest problem in this country is that we are not a we. We are not coming together. We're, we're pulling apart, whether it's politically, racially, geographically. And, uh, and, and a lot of that I wanted to play out in the novel with these three characters, but in the community that they form, but also what's happening around them. Right, right. And, and so, so I, you know, did the, the novel somewhat predicted the pandemic, but I think it's still, uh, the reason I put it in there was because I felt this would be a test of our country. Right. And I, still, I think it still is. And I think we sort Absolutely. of failed. Absolutely. I think we That's sort it. of failed. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. also, I think that uh, your pandemic was much worse than what uh, the real, you know, the pandemic that we oh, just yeah. had. But I also think that we're not done. That there's We're still a pandemic that's going to come and is, if you think about, you know, Malthusian economics, right? right. It's going to, you know, it's it's probably going to threaten a pretty large percentage of the population. And this kind of reflects that. And I think it's really kind of a zeitgeist today when we think about our future and we think about it, it's like, you know, uh, uh, it's coming. I mean, it, I think it came a little bit, but it might be coming more. And that's one of the things. And I kind of want to end with this. The ending of this novel in many ways is a beginning. And it almost takes us to a prelapsarian uh, uh, hope and times where you have this Molly and Turi, this Adam and Eve beginning again in a place that is beyond even the dream of Connecticut that Turi right. had. So can you talk a little bit about this ending and how it how how are we supposed to feel about it? Because when I feel about it, I feel hopeful. I, I think you should feel hopeful. I think it, but it, but but I think hopeful in a realistic way, which is Duty and Molly went through hell. Right. And they survived. And they have each other. And they they are beginning. It is supposed to be in many ways, a new beginning. But, and, and that is what I, what I said earlier, which is I don't think you appreciate the American dream unless you go through the struggle, mm. unless you go through the work, unless you go through people hating your guts and not wanting here, and yet not leaving, yet fighting for your place, and then winning your place. You know, and all of that struggle makes you appreciate this freedom so much more deeply than you would if you did not have that struggle. And right. immigrants have that struggle. You know, immigrants that, that survive. So, so for me, it is a hopeful place, but, but it, it's also in many ways the warning, which is unless we come together, perhaps like Turi and Molly, um, we're going to face this test again. 
Well, thank you, Sergio. The name of the book is Nobody's Pilgrim. Right now, I have to hold the microphone up because my air conditioner just came on. I hope that doesn't affect our audio. But um, Nobody's Pilgrim, uh, get the book now or see the movie in, uh, or the Netflix series, whichever it's going to be. And uh, very soon, I, I'm pretty sure you're going to have success with this, um, not just as a, as a book, but uh, a movie or, or a, a mini series, a television series, limited series. But uh, thank you, Sergio. And uh, what are you working on now? Well, uh, Daniel, I, first I want to thank you because you're always an inspiration to me. I read, I read your books. I'm always waiting for your next book. And you're one of these people that, uh, that I feel I can learn a lot from. So I'm always uh, eager to, to read your stories as well. Um, but I'm working on, you know, on some essays. I'm working on another novel. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was just finished as president of the Texas Institute of Letters, and I was in the middle of producing uh, books and all of this, I was sort of exhausted. <laughs> and uh, and maybe, maybe sort of exhausted. Not, you know, I took the summer to kind of replenish and I'm feeling great now. And I also went through, as you know, a health crisis. You know, I had uh, follicular lymphoma and I had to go through six months of chemotherapy. And I survived. And not only did I survive, my doctor who keeps checking me every four months says, far as we know, it's gone. You're clear, but you still have to get checked. And it's, by the way, Jane Fonda apparently just was diagnosed with something very similar. Um, so it is something you can treat, but it also wakes you up. And, and you have to ask, you know, it puts your mortality right in front of your face when you get cancer. And, uh, and you have to ask, well, have I done? And my reaction when I first was diagnosed was, uh, to tell you the truth, it was happiness. It was, I've done a lot already. And, and if it were, if I were, if this were to be my end, I would be happy with where I, with what I've done. I'm not done yet. I hope to produce another four, five, eight books. Um, but, you know, having started in Isleta, you know, with um, an outhouse in the backyard and, uh, Lamparas de petróleo, kerosene lamps, with nothing, you know, to where I've gotten. I'm I'm happy. I didn't waste a lot of time. I don't. Ha I have marginal regrets. I wish I had taken uh, Daniel Chacon out for more drinks, uh, but that's not over. And lunches, and lunches. <laughs> um, but but you know, I mean, in in general, it, it it was sort of reinvigorating in a way to go through that health crisis because. I want to keep writing. I, I know the stories I want to keep writing. And um, and I feel like I haven't done much. I'm just starting. And I hope that's true. I hope my brain doesn't conk out or I have a stroke or some other terrible thing happens to me. But it, it was a wake-up call, but it, but it was also an assessment of where I, where I am. And I felt happy with what I've done. You know, I married the woman I loved. And we just celebrated 32 years with Laurita. And uh, I haven't been, I hope, too much of an asshole in the uh, Chicano community. I tried to be a positive force, even though other people have not been sometimes. And, uh, and so I tried to leave what I think is a somewhat ethical life. Uh, do I have an ego? Yes, I do. Do I fight back? Yes, I do. But I try to do things for the right reasons, not just for me. 
And so I hope that is in part my legacy. Well, thank you very much, Sergio. Uh, it's It's been fun dipping into this novel, and I'm really looking forward to anything you're going to do in the future. I'm Daniel Chacon. Thank you for joining me on Words on a Wire. The name of the book is Nobody's Pilgrim. If you are listening locally, you can get this at Literary Bookstore right here in El Paso, Texas. If you are listening uh, via our podcast, uh, anywhere good books are sold, you can order this book anywhere. Nobody's Pilgrim. Thank you, Sergio, and uh, we'll see you next time. Works on a wire. 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 Wire.